had, you know, $100,000 in credit card debt, and, you know, I had borrowed everything I could. At that point in time, I'm not a natural born salesman, but I, I put on a salesman cap and started knocking on the doors of machine shops. And really, this is where I say I just got lucky. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is Calvin Goforth, founder and CEO of VicTech, a virtual enterprising business model to support the formation and development of technology startup companies. Calvin has extensive experience in the startup company development in founder, investor, board member, and executive roles. In these roles, he's raised tens of millions in capital, helped bring several high-value products from concept to market, and helped bring multiple companies to exit events. Calvin also founded and manages the Vic Investor Network that provides seed capital into every new company Vic forms. Calvin, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. You know, when we first talked, I, I uh, you know, I found what you're up to so interesting. And as I mentioned, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's unaware of what you're doing. So say a little bit about what the biggest problem is that you're solving here. Well, there's a huge investment in research and development in universities from the federal government. So there's actually over $120 billion per year spent by the federal government on Mm -hmm. so-called extramural research and development. Hmm. And over $35 billion of that is directly life science related, which is where, where we work. And a larger portion of that is has applications within life science. So it's a huge investment. And from that investment, there drives literally thousands of new inventions each year. Some of them aren't commercially, in fact, most of them are not commercially practical, but some of them have huge commercial potential and also huge potential societal impact, positive impact. Uh, So, the problem is with the universities, they get the funding to do this very fundamental work, mm-hmm. but they can only take it so so far with, with that funding of the type that goes to universities. So then they're, then they're looking for how do we you know, commercialize this technology, and these technologies are just too early stage for most venture capital firms mm-hmm. uh, to come in. So mm-hmm. the, the way that most universities... Um, the largest portion of licenses go to mm-hmm. um, faculty and student-led startups. And I'm a former faculty member myself, and I left right. a university position to start a company. I didn't try to stay in the university. I left my faculty position to start a company, uh, whereas most professors are trying to do it you know, on the side. Yeah. But the problem is that su- the, the success rate of that approach is very low. The, the right. professor and the any student they may have involved with it do not have the product commercialization experience needed, the, the ability to raise the millions of dollars of capital 
needed, mm-hmm. really understanding the regulatory path, really looking in, you know, in detail at the competitive intellectual property landscape. They just don't have that experience. So that for that reason, the success rate is low. So the, the VicTech business model has really been designed to take advantage of this enormous investment in, in you know, by the federal government in university research, mm-hmm. uh, by licensing technologies at universities. We invite the inventors, the professors to join the company as co-founders and technical mm-hmm. advisors. We mm-hmm. put in the initial capital and move the company forward. So really, we're, we're taking advantage of this huge upside left by this kind of hole in the, you know, in the traditional model of, of how these technologies move forward. Did you discover this when you were still uh, an educator? No, um, when I, I, I um, just dove headfirst into a startup without knowing really much of anything, and I and I <laughs> and I made I made every mistake you could possibly make. Well, good. Yeah, we're going to talk about those. <laughs> okay, because yeah, um, by you know from that experience, I, I became aware of or began thinking about. Um, you know, the how do you help mm. people like myself and when I first started that has have technical knowledge, but don't really have all the business. The operating knowledge and so on and so forth. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so, so pardon my, you know, any ignorance here, but how do you define or how do, how do the universities or the government define life sciences? Like what? What are those like vertical areas? So, so it includes therapeutics, you know, new drugs, small mm-hmm. molecule drugs, biologic drugs. Includes mm-hmm. medical devices of all kinds. Okay. Includes medical okay. diagnostics, um, and it, it includes a lot of the underlying technologies um, that okay. underlie all of those. Okay, gotcha. VicTech was sort of formed out of a consulting firm that you founded in two thousand seven. That you then pivoted um, to what you you know where you are currently in 2013. H- how did that happen? When we were a consulting firm, we were you know working with existing tech startups. We were trying to help mm-hmm. them, I, and I basically I recruited a team of people that had complementary skills to myself, and, and we were a virtual t- business development team essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and we start working with existing technology startups. But as consultants, you don't really have any control. And if you're working for equity, which we largely were, in my case, I was mm-hmm. entirely working for equity. I was just living off the money I made on my first company. Right. You know, if you don't have actual control, you can give good advice. And if it's not being followed, that equity may not ever become valuable. So mm-hmm. then we then we decided, well, you know, there's all these professors in universities who don't want to do what I did. They don't want to leave a secure tenure track faculty position and put Not every right. dime they have into some risky <laughs> startup. You know, I came, yeah, yeah. I came within inches of bankruptcy. You know, when, right. you know as, I, as I stumbled my way through that. Most professors you're, you're don't want to do typical, that. <laughs> right? You're not the typical educator. Right. You know, I'll, my, my sister, who is a PhD um, and now retired for about three years, said to me. God, it's got to be 25 years ago or or more. She said, I don't know how you do what you do and not have a, you know, a constant paycheck every two weeks. (laughs) You know, that's what separates entrepreneurs from other people. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. Right? 
Oops. Um, let's go on. Yeah. So most prof- professors don't want to do that, but they do want to see their yeah. ideas come to commercial fruition. So sure. then the iteration from the consulting firm was, okay, we're going to start doing new venture mm-hmm. development rather than consulting with existing mm-hmm. startups. We're going to start forming companies. We'll be the business development team. Professor mm-hmm. will oversee the technology and product mm-hmm. development. Um, that, that also didn't work very well, though. Um, Why not? Because the professors did what the professors are good at, research. But the companies <laughs> right. all became research companies. We were getting we were getting federal grants. People's salaries oh were getting goodness. paid, but no products were emerging out there. Yeah, the sure. Right. So, yeah. So like, then, no value creation there. <laughs> right, right. So, so, so then we started bringing in really product development-focused people. Sure. And we added the Vic Investor Network to put the seed capital into every new company mm-hmm. we started. So that, that was done in 2013. And really, the model we have today was in place in 2013, and it's been working you know, really well after mm-hmm. climbing that learning curve on everything needs to be done. There's a lot of other lessons too, you know, the busy beyond, beyond just not having the professors lead the product development. Yeah. How did you build the investor network? Well, uh, a lot of, um, you know, just networking, you know, meeting people, reaching out. Uh, over time, we, you know, we had some people that gained trust in, in, in what we were mm-hmm. doing. And, and um, I had a Great board of directors. I still have a great board of directors um, that help with introductions. You know, warm introductions mm-hmm. are are um, one of the best ways to right. to close investments because if you're just reaching mm-hmm. out to someone cold, it, it takes them a long time to gain trust. Mm-hmm. But if you if you have someone who's touting you that they trust, then yeah. they, they they will trust you as yeah. well. So my no my question. board was extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and that's a lesson that we apply to all of our portfolio companies: is try to get a really strong board and a board mm-hmm. of directors in place that can help a lot, and also strategic or scientific advisory board. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, can really really make a difference. Right. You mentioned control; that that was an, an issue. Can you say a little bit more about that, and you know how you? We're able to then go and, and realize, you know, we've got to be in control of this, not them. Because, you know, founders typically don't want to give away control. And I could, you know, name a few companies like that <laughs> that we all know. Right. So we we have um, a, a team that we call our opportunity assessment team that is mm-hmm. reviewing technologies every week, screening them. And and we have a very systematic process, but one of the early steps in the process is to see if the inventors are aligned with what we do, because if they're not, there's no point in us spending you know three months of effort, you know, reviewing all the things we look at, which is you know pretty vast vast effort when we're reviewing a technology, you know, if we're if we're not aligned on the other end. So when we talk to the professors, first of all, one thing. Your audience should probably understand is that the professors don't own the intellectual property. The university owns right. the intellectual property, so the license is with the university. Yeah. Yeah. Nevertheless, it, it would be very rare for us want to want to try to license the technology if the inventor of the technology didn't want to partner with us. Mm-hmm. So we talk to the professor, and sometimes you know, sometimes they, we have to really step them through. Look here. Have you really thought about everything that's going to take to make this company successful? The, mm-hmm. the millions of dollars of capital that are going to be needed to raise, the years of development, the mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, regulatory path and, and risks, all the competing intellectual property. Have you really thought about all that? Yes, this, this technology has huge upside, but also has an enormous number of risks that must be mitigated every step mm-hmm. of the way. And when we really step them through that process, uh, nine, times, realize, nine times out of yeah. 10, they're willing to, yeah. to take a lower equity stake, not yep. be in control, trust us to do that, to do what to mm-hmm. we do well, and then they do what they do well, is provide the technical knowledge from their years mm-hmm. spent developing the technology. Are you willing to divulge where, you know, you said they're they're usually willing to take a lower equity stake. Are you really, are you willing to divulge like where they start with that, you know, like what they're willing to take because they realize now, oh, God, I'm, there's so much involved in this. I'm never going to be able to bring this to fruition. Yeah, in our, in our, in our model, the um, professors and the university uh, get up to a 25% equity stake combined. Pre pre money. Well, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> that, yeah, Especially that's, if that's, you've got a big valuation on it. Right. So, I mean, so, that's, you so, know. so sometimes yeah. it's less than that, but that's the maximum. And, and it. It, it really, you know, it, it depends on what their role is. We're, you know, the license, right. Typically, universities are expecting about a 5% equity stake for a license Which to start. Which is still impressive if something really, you know, makes a hit. Right. <laughs> and then the, the, the professors, how much equity they get depends on what their role is going to If they're just going to be, you know, available for a phone call now and then that's going to be a yeah, lower equity. If right. they're going to roll off their sleeves and work work with our mm-hmm. product development team every week, being available to really help help our product development team move things along, then, then they get the higher equity stake. Yeah, got it. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your journey. Um, you know, you started and received your bachelor's in aerospace en- engineering from uh, UT Austin. Um, you held positions at NASA, Rocketdyne, um, you know, you got a PhD in mechanical engineering and a minor in electrical engineering from Stanford. Um, not too shabby. Um, you know, and then you returned to Arkansas um, and took, I guess, your first position as an assistant professor, right, in the educational uh, the educational arena at the University of Arkansas. Um, it, you know, it was there that you received their the university's uh, Halliburton Outstanding Research Award. Um, uh, in mechanical engineering for three straight years. Um, and it was there, it was then that you left to form Vector. This is your first startup, correct? Yes, that's that's the okay. one that I um, okay. made a lot of mistakes in, but kind of right. stumbled my and, way and, to success. And know. that's, so that's what I want to talk about. So you, you, you know, originally had the, the vision to build an open architecture uh, PC-based controller. Um, you self-financed it developed the product, you know, uh, the first product, you know, in, in a year. Um, but step me through some of those mistakes you made. I mean, the critical ones. <laughs> right. So, yeah. I, and what you learned from those and, and, the, and, and the, and the, uh, wisdom you can impart. <laughs> so when I got done with, you know, my PhD work at, at Stanford, mm-hmm. I'm, I knew that I wanted to, first of all, you know, there's so much going on. It's easy to get interested in startups and such at yeah. Stanford. And, and, and I was oh, yeah. interested, but I didn't, my, my PhD research didn't really lend itself to any sort of startup opportunity. So I came, came back to my home state of Arkansas where all my family has and took an assistant professor position, but right. with the plan to do research in areas that might lend itself to a startup. And so, uh, Eventually, I hit upon you know a, a need for you for 
lower cost, more versatile controls. And this was just at the very beginning of the migration from what are called closed architecture controls, controls that mm-hmm. are, you know, big companies that, you know, lock boxes, people can't c- get in there and, and, and really, you know, take advantage of all the work of other parties. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, my idea was to take this, the PC platform, which was just emerging as an industrial control and, and, and build a flexible controller. So let me, let me tell you one thing that I really just shake my head about. You know, I, I left that faculty position and I started this company and I put every dime I had and could borrow mm-hmm. into it. And I had never done a, a one iota of market research. I never had talked to a single customer. I mean, if, if wow. that's not a boneheaded mistake. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. You don't know I, what you don't know, right? Right. I can't tell you. And, and you didn't have the luxury of advisors who did know that. Right. I so guess. after. Yeah. You know, we, you know, I, I hired one of my former grad students, and mm-hmm. he and I, we, you know, went after it. And after one year, we had our first first product. And by mm-hmm. that point in time, I was broke. I had no more money. Um, I, I had borrowed everything. I had, you know, hundred thousand dollars in credit card debt, and you know, I, I had borrowed everything <laughs> I could. Yeah. So. At that point in time, I'm not an actual Warren salesman, but I, I put on a salesman cap and started knocking on the doors of machine shops. And it, and really, this is where I say I just got lucky. I got lucky because there was a market need. And, and the market need that we found was um, there's all these old machine tools, uh, CNC machine tools, lays and milling machines and such that mm-hmm. that had these um, broken down controls, but the iron, the base platform was solid. It would last forever if it's taken care of, but their, their controls were broken down and to replace those controls from the big control manufacturers would cost them a fortune. Mm. We had this versatile PC-based platform. We could rip out the old controls, put our controls in. And so we immediately found a, a you know, market retrofitting old machine tools with our controller. So that that was the good news. The bad news was we were we had no infrastructure, we had no inventory <laughs> management, we had no engineering documentation. We were changing the product every week. Yeah. We were you know oh, yeah. you know cash flow you know consist consisted of me frantically calling up people and begging them to go ahead and pay us so that we could meet our <laughs> meet our payroll as we started adding people. Yeah, I mean, sure. it, the, the company was the most disastrously run company you could ever imagine. But I was learning along the way. But I could see all the mistakes. I just, I just yeah. c- couldn't fix them as fast as they were occurring. But fortunately, I found a company that bought my company, um, and, and I, you know, I, I learned a lot from you know from from that experience. That mm-hmm. Supplied everything I've I've done going forward, uh, and. And then after we started Vic, we, you know, the reason we switched to life science, you know, at the time I wasn't a life science person, but it's it simply because that's where we were seeing the greatest opportunities. So now I've been in life science for a very long time. Right, but, right. But, um, originally, we switched to that simply because that's where we were seeing the greatest opportunities mm-hmm. from technologies in, in the universities. Calvin, did it not dawn on you back then that that you might need some advisors? <laughs> No, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I guess it did, but I mean, I didn't have any money to pay any consultants, and and well, I, I just, yeah, I just I mean, didn't, I just didn't, yeah. I just assumed that people would want this because it was, it'd be cool, and and I, again, I got, I got lucky. <laughs> There's that, the operative word, <laughs> right? <laughs> Interesting. I mean, is there a competitive landscape for what you're up to? Are there other companies out there doing what you're doing? 
Yeah, I mean, there's lots of people that are, you know, looking at technologies on universities. There's, there, Vic is different in several senses. First of all, we're, we're nationally comprised. So we have several different offices across the country. Mm-hmm. We have okay. nationally comprised set of relationships with universities that are, have come to understand the Vic model and they regularly send us technologies mm-hmm. to look at that they think would fit with Vic. We have mm-hmm. nationally comprised investor network. Uh, we, mm-hmm. we have, um, you know, most groups are doing what we do are just like small groups doing things locally. So we have a, a huge funnel of opportunities that we're sorting through to find the very few things that we take forward. And, and, and that's in part because we've built this, this national network of both our team and relationships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're a small team. You're only about 14, 14 people. In Vic, um, in Vic itself, yes. Right, in Vic itself, right. And and what 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 does that organization look like? I mean, so, who's doing what? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, we have in, in the different offices we have managing directors, and I'm I'm CEO mm-hmm. of, of Vic Tech, but right. I, I basically serve as the managing director of the Arkansas office. But mm-hmm. you know, for example, we have a managing director and executive vice president in, in Colorado, um, Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the managing directors, you know, build out the network and their relationships. And they serve as interim CEOs for new companies we form. So typically for the Got first it. couple of years to get some initial traction, we're doing mm-hmm. it with our own executive management. And then as the companies mm-hmm. establish tra- traction, we recruit in the permanent management. So the managing directors are, are key personnel, but we also have a complete um, support team. So everything from accounting to HR to mm-hmm. marketing and communications and scientific and engineering support that we provide to all the all the offices and, right. and that's that's a great benefit because that allows the CEOs the interim the, whether it's mm-hmm. the permanent CEO or the interim CEO to focus on what you want the CEOs to focus on of course you know the strategic yeah, not the minutiae. Right, the yeah. funding plan, the regulatory plan. You don't want them mm-hmm. focusing focusing on all the mm-hmm. administrative minutia. So of course. You know, from day one when we form a company, the first employee already has a four oh one K set up, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's an umbrella part of the VIC plan. Mm-hmm. Um and, and all those things that the CEO, the legal structure doesn't have to worry about. Uh and that's so it's a really efficient model. Mm-hmm. Calvin, how did you grow y- your VIC team? Like, where did you find these people? Yeah, there's um, no single answer to that. Um, I mean, it's just a wide variety of sources, you know, some from introductions as we were working with, mm-hmm. you know, with, with, with people, you know, um, you know, one of our board members recently agreed to join one of our companies as CEO. Uh, we, use, we use LinkedIn a lot for identifying mm-hmm. people. LinkedIn's I think a, a great resource for identifying executive level people that that fit you know with what you're doing. So we use LinkedIn a lot, um, but it's a wide variety of sources. We, we, one thing we we've, we've never needed to do, you know, is really use like um, recruiting firms. We just mm-hmm. we network, we talk to people, we get mm-hmm. you know we get uh, recommendations for people. We use LinkedIn, mm-hmm. and that and that's been good for us. Mm-hmm. No, if it's working for you, that's fantastic. Um, so, how do you how do you ferret out um, if a tech you know a technology if an opportunity is really an opportunity? 
Yeah, but yeah, I mean that's part of the secret sauce. It's not a secret. I'll, I'll tell you about. It. I mean, it's it's part of our. It's part <laughs> yeah. of. It's one of the things I think we're really good at. Good we're at, really good yeah. at, you know, identifying and and screening technologies and and so. When we get a technology, either one that some university that has we have a relationship with has mm-hmm. sent to us, or one that one of our opportunity assessment team members um, has identified, and I should I should add that you know our opportunity assessment team also includes uh, our Vic Fellows, which is our it, it's a one year program, so it's, a, it's a, in total the opportunity assessment team is about a fifteen person team. Um, it, because it includes the Vic Fellows, which is a one-year program where we bring in MD scientists and life science executives mm-hmm. right. and train them in, in commercialization of these type of technologies, but also draw on their skills, you know, the medical skills, you know, medical knowledge from the MDs, uh, you know, scientists, you know, knowledge, the, the life science executive knowledge as we do the screening. So, so when we, when, when we see a new technology, you know, someone brings forward a new technology, the team it basically goes through several stages. And the first stage is what we call initial screen. And, and the, whoever brought the technology forward discusses it to the rest of the team. Say, hey, here's why I brought it forward. Thought it was interesting. May or may not even be within their precise area of expertise. They said, you know, which they say, say, I'm not sure about this, but it looked interesting enough. I thought it was worth discussion. And, and then we discuss it. And really, a lot of technologies get weeded out just Right there, because you know one of the other team members knows another technology that already does this and looks mm-hmm. seems to do it even better. That we know the the regulatory pathway mm-hmm. is too long. You know, the the um, there's just a lot of reasons it may be screened out. But if it, if mm-hmm. it makes it through the initial screen, if the, someone says yes, I think this is this is interesting, then we assign a due diligence lead and and we move it into what we call our prospect category. And from there, we we make a determination. Where do we think the riskiest um, thing is for this technology? In some cases, it's the market adoption, market opportunity drivers. Yeah, you know, because there's a lot of times you can have an improved device, but you've got to understand what drives adoption. So if it's a medical device, what's mm-hmm. going to make the doctors stop? Want to use it. Right. right. And, and and who's paying for it? And right. know, is it going to make the doctors money? Is it going to cost them money? Because even if right. it's better, if it's costing them money because there's no medical reimbursement code for it, it's going to be a very mm-hmm. challenging thing. So there's mm-hmm. so we always say, what's the riskiest thing? But other cases, this right. is intellectual property. We say, well, this is really interesting, but we've seen five other t- related technologies. We better compare this one to those other five and see if this one really stands out. So we, we always identify what's the riskiest area and we step through the highest risks. And if it still mm-hmm. looks positive, and, and we also at that stage talk to the inventors, usually have them make a presentation to us, mm-hmm. make sure they're aligned on the model. And if that all looks good, uh, then we move it into the active stage. And that's where we really do our deep dive systematic due diligence that looks at, at everything, looks at the market, Drivers and opportunity it looks at the intellectual property landscape. It looks at the regulatory path, the amount of funding that's going to be required to bring it to commercialization. Who's potential acquire the company when we get it to a certain point? How long do we think it will take to get to that point where the company's in position for you know to be acquired? And that's our normal exit model is to be acquired by a larger company. Mm-hmm. Um, so all those things go into the active process, and v- very few technologies emerge out that other 
into the pipeline. But if something does, and then it's presented to the VIC board of directors, of which I'm okay. a part of, and the mm -hmm. VIC board of directors makes the final go, no go decision. If okay. it's a go decision, then a new company is formed, the technology is licensed into that new company, the inventors are invited in as co founders mm -hmm. and equity stakeholders. We assign, put in place initial team, and the VIC Investor Network puts in place initial capital. And the initial capital is only really mm -hmm. meant to be enough to help move the technology, de-risk it a little bit, position that company for um, substantial follow-on capital. So if it's a medical device, yep. the VIC Investor Network puts in 250000 If it's a therapeutics, they put in 500000 And as we're doing our assessment, we're also evaluating what can we do with that initial mm -hmm bit of funding. It's not in the grand scheme of how much money the company's going to need. That's only a small amount of funding. No, you're, you're barely pre-seed. <laughs> right. Uh, but what are we going to do with that to position yeah. the company for substantial fall investment? And to mm -hmm. date, we've been successful in every single case and in, in wow. positioning the company That's impressive. for additional follow-up funding. That, that is not the typical venture model, is it? No. Where, it's, you know, one out of 10 yeah. makes a payback, a good payback. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying all, we've, I mean, we have had companies we shut down, but I'm saying the, mm -hmm. in no case have we not been able to get to the point where we've been able to position the company for substantial follow-on capital. Got it. Oh, got it. Okay. Okay. Um, how long does this process take to get to get to that point from the beginning, usually? The opportunity assessment process or yeah, the whole thing, yeah. company development process. G getting it from the time somebody says we have an interesting technology we want you to look at to the time where you make that go, no-go decision. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty extensive process. It takes at a very minimum sixty days, and oftentimes longer. Sometimes one hundred twenty days. No, that's. I mean, that doesn't seem like it's that long in the scheme of things, right? right. Um, especially if you're going to invest in something that could go belly up, which yeah. you know is, the objective is to not see that happen. Um, what would you say are some of the biggest opportunities and or threats in what you're up to? Well, all these companies need capital. So anytime that, you know, the mm. market, financial markets are nervous and troubled, it makes me a little nervous. You know, is it going to affect our mm -hmm. ability to raise capital? We see delays. Sure. You know, we we had a company um, last uh, late spring that looked like it was on the verge of a major acquisition, you know, from a, from a large strategic company. And then that company got nervous about the economic climate, and then they had people turnover. And so then, you know, basically it's a reset. Um, so, so things mm -hmm. like that happen. And, and I think anytime, you know, anytime the economy is going well, you know, our job's a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're not, um, I, it's not affecting us tremendously. It's just, it, it makes me a little nervous anytime because if, you know, if we, we can't, get the money we need, then things are going to go slower. So far, we've been yeah. still, you know, still been successful doing so, but it always yeah. makes me a little bit nervous. Well, I mean, I think it makes anybody nervous, especially when you, you know, when you open up your email every day and you're getting, you know, there's another article on, you know, venture capital drying up or something like that, <laughs> you know, investment drying up. And, and, you know, but the reality is, is, you know, within tech, I've always believed, and I'm not an investor like this, but you know, this is what drives our, what drives everything is technology. So, I mean, if, if, if there's something that people are going to need, 
And, you know, to your point, you've got a doctor that realizes they're going to make money from this. How do they, you know, how do you say no to wanting to invest in something? That's right. Good opportunities are going to continue to get funded. Exactly. Just may have to work a little bit harder. <laughs> and, and you know what? Take out the funding. Yeah. So what? Really? I mean, that's, that's okay. Um, is there any outdated advice being disseminated uh, in and around your industry? I don't know if I could say there's outdated advice. I will say that sometimes universities get so focused on building an ecosystem to support their professors and doing things that, that mm-hmm. they, they become a little bit close to other approaches, even when the statistics say that mm-hmm. what they're doing is, is a low rate of success. Um, it, you know, despite the fact that they're building out their ecosystem, and that's right. fine. There's we have so many technologies we look at. We don't, you know, we don't spend time trying to, you know, convince mm-hmm. someone who's not interested. Um, mm-hmm. But I will say that uh, I don't think it's in the interest of universities, you know, to bring you know a technology forward from with the university with a professor as the start as the lead in the startup distracted from his or her full-time, you know, position in the university. Right. If there's another group that actually has experience that's interested in taking it on fair terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, I, I know somebody like that who, who is a, who is an, an educator, a professor, and also has a startup. And I'm like, how are you ever going to get that startup off the ground if you're focused on, you know, your, you know, being an educator? You know, you just can't, you just can't, I mean, it's just multitasking. Multitasking is not effective. And I will say there are exceptions to the rule in the sense that mm-hmm. there are, there are some, you know, some professors who really do have the knowledge and capability to successfully lead a startup. And it's mm-hmm. just the by and large, the majority do, do not simply from never having done something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the uh, Vic culture. Well, um, how, how, I don't think I've ever been asked that. What is the Vic culture? So we're, you know, virtual team. I mean, yep. we've got people across the country. Um, we, we only have the headquarters here in Arkansas where there's a team that sits, sits together. Um, most of our meetings are held via Zoom. Um, mm-hmm. I think we've got um, a very friendly, collaborative Team, you know, I think, um, you know, when we when we do our exit interviews with the Vic fellows, for example, they they always you know express extreme satisfaction with how much they've learned mm-hmm. about the process. I, I had being a great experience. I don't think that would happen mm-hmm. if it, you know if they didn't enjoy working mm-hmm. with the people that we have. So, you know, right, having people that act professionally and kind of the no, you know, the no asshole rule. <laughs> Right, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> right. Um, is important to me, and, and yeah. you know where everyone's treated with res- you know respect, and that's mm-hmm. not say we don't have high expectations. We do, but but you know everyone's treated with respect and and acts professionally. And I think by and large, um, in fact, I think just really pretty much across the board, that's the case. Got it. So, if somebody were looking to get into your industry, doing what you're doing, not necessarily in life sciences, but you know, and and taking some 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 idea that some professors come up with and bring it to fruition as as you often do uh what kind of advice would you give them well i would um you know tell them to make sure they bring in the right 
help to look at the technology to really evaluate where the risks are. Because you know, I've I've been doing this for you know twenty years now, and and mm-hmm. uh, I've been doing s- startup development, and there's still things, lots of things that I don't know. And of course, that's awesome. Yeah, you know we're you know, we're pretty broad, you know, I, you know I'm not a pharma person. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I work more on the medical device side, but we have, you know, pharma experts on our team. But no matter which technology we look at, we've, we always seek to bring in strong guidance. And we have, mm-hmm. so we, have, we formed a medical advisory board that covers a lot of different disciplines, right. a strategic advisory board that provides business domain experience within the life science. So, you know, if it's an individual looking for an opportunity, they go to the, you know, to any university and say, I'm interested in looking at your technologies or go to the website and see if they find something interesting. Mm-hmm. Talk to the professors. And mm-hmm. the only thing I would say is don't, don't underspend on the, on the real assessment of the technology because yeah, if you, your due diligence, yeah, if you, if you pick the wrong thing, you know, you could be years into it before you realize that, you know, this is just not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your day-to-day look like, Calvin? Well, as my, a leader. Yeah, my day-to-day is um much more fragmented than most of like anyone else on the team. You know, managing directors are typically um you know serving as interim CEOs for a couple of companies, right. a couple of our companies. Uh mine is much more fragmented because I'm on the board of so many of the companies. Yeah. I'm also you know, on weekly, co- you know, call regular calls with with all the you know all the executive team members, you know, one on one calls, just helping them think through you know problems and you know solutions. Um, so I, I my days my days spent uh, largely on Zoom, <laughs> you know, and I, that's not to say I don't have any time to actually sit down and. and and do uh, business development work I do, but I, I, I spend a lot of my time, you know, in, in board meetings and and calls mm-hmm. with, with team members, uh, working through, um, you know, kind of the strategic path and so on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you uh, when you it, it, when you built the company, did you uh, you built it as a hundred percent remote? Other than you know who you've got working there for you in Arkansas. Or did the pandemic require you to adjust how you were doing business? No, we, we were already doing, we were already remote yeah. when the pandemic hit. Yeah. So we were, okay. you know, that wasn't a problem for us. But, okay. but you know, when we, when we first started um, the new venture stuff and it, we were just in Arkansas, you know, we, we mm-hmm. went to the University of Arkansas, looked at their technologies and mm-hmm. that was part of the mistake, you know, again, part of the learning is, University of Arkansas had some interesting technologies, but you know they're not a large research institution. They're a, right. They're an improving research institution. You know, and then actually Northwest Arkansas is booming. You know, you know economically, and so that's really? a great place to live. But you know, at the time mm-hmm. that we started, it wasn't a. It still isn't a large research institution. So we t- we took a couple of technologies out, licensed them out into startups that were, you know, by our standards today would not pass our due diligence. They were just too early, too many things mm-hmm. unknown. Um, but we, t- we took them at the time because we didn't know, know better. Eventually, we realized we really need to broaden down. And that's where the idea, okay, well, let's really start building relationships in other parts of the, of the country. So that was also mm-hmm. part of our learning curve. And, and, and so we've been doing you know, this 
you know, mm -hmm. distributed team model for many years now. Mm -hmm. How many other offices do you have other than you mentioned Boulder and where you are currently? We have three other offices, but we also have operations, but not full offices in, in two or three other sites. Got it. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that we haven't covered uh, that you want to talk about before we finish uh, up? Well, we haven't. Um, I mentioned one thing that part of the ecosystem, which is, a, I think, an important part of the ecosystem, is we okay. have we have a, what we call the Vic Foundry, which is a separate company. Sometimes mm -hmm. we see these technologies that have huge upside, huge potential societal impact, but so many unknowns, so many risks that we we are not mm -hmm. ready to put our money in or tell our co-investors in the Vic mm -hmm. Investor Networks you know, to put their money in. Right. So in that case, we can put it, we can work with the professors in the Vic Foundry, go after non-dilute government grants to de-risk the technology. Mm -hmm. And then oh, if the, if the, you know, grant work is successful and, and the technology is de-risked, then we can later move it into, you know, uh, a new company as intellectual property foundation for that company. So the Vic Foundry represents, an, you know, part of our, uh, technology pipeline. Similarly, like the Vic Fellows program that I've mentioned represents a talent pipeline because right. after the the one-year program, a lot of our Vic Fellows move into roles either within Vic, you know, uh, it, it could be a senior fellow role. It could be a mm -hmm. role in one of the portfolio mm -hmm. companies. Um, it could be a medical advisory board role. So mm -hmm. a lot of our Vic fellows move into roles in, in Vic after the program. And so that's a talent pipeline, and uh, mm -hmm. which uh, complements the Vic Foundry as a technology pipeline. What, what makes uh, a technology too risky that you have to put it through the de-risk process? So, so let's say you have some uh, um, therapeutic drug candidate. You know, some some inventors create an uh, mm -hmm. You know, a new, a new drug has been tested, you know, in vitro, meaning, it, you know, in a laboratory dishes. Yep. You know. Many, so, sometimes that's enough for us, but most of the time we'd really, you know, like to see some initial animal model studies, you know, mouse model or whatever's appropriate for that type of drug. Mm -hmm. um, just because, you know, what happens in vitro is oftentimes quite different than what happens, you know, in vivo. Right. Um, so that would be one example. There's there's lots of examples. We've had you know technology ideas for medical devices that are that are just ideas, and there were even a rough prototype you know built um, that we think is a good idea, but we really need to spend you know spend a little bit of time making a prototype right. to, to see if it's practical. Doesn't really not. work. Yeah, yeah. Right. Interesting. Well, I, I really appreciate you you being on the show because. Uh, you know, I, 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 and I've got another uh, venture capitalist to something a little bit different, you know, coming along after you. And, you know, I think that it's, it's one of these areas that is just so mysterious to those who are not, you know, it's, it's the, who are not in, in, you know, in the inner circle, so to speak. Yeah. Right. Well I appreciate the uh, opportunity to be here. I, I, I yeah. can also, 
number for your your readers, if they're interested in more information, they can go to victech.com. Or okay. if they're interested in the investor network, vicnetwork.com, get more information mm-hmm. on either one yep. or both. Yep. And that's V-I-C, not V-I-C-K or anything. So uh, for VicTech or the, the Vic Foundry. So, well, Calvin Goforth, founder and CEO of VicTech, thanks so much for being with me. Uh, you know, I, I knew this was going to be an interesting interview, so I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.